All right, let's open up to Joshua chapter 18. We're going to look at 18 and 19. We're going to take communion this evening. I'm hoping to do 18, 19, and 20. We'll see how that goes. Uh, we may only get through verse, or chapter 18 and 19. But just to kind of back up where we are at here, uh, the children of Israel, as you know, just to recap very quickly, they've come across the Jordan. Uh, Joshua's led them. They've, they started their central campaign into the, uh, the, the country of Canaan. And uh, for those who are listening, uh, will be listening on the radio, uh, there's, a, there's just a map of Israel. Uh, up here with the uh, 12 tribes uh, designated, the three tribes, uh, Reuben in the south, Gad in the middle, and Manasseh on the right side of the Jordan River, which is on the east side, and then the other uh, uh, nine tribes on the other side of the uh, Jordan River, and that's on the west side, and so really they're just marked out there for us. But they come across there, and they, they head central. They, they do the central campaign, and they conquer first Jericho, as you know, and then they, then they conquer Ai, and they learn some hard lessons. And then they turn their attention southward as they begin a southern campaign, going down in the, in the south and conquering those cities and those kings, and then heading straight up from there uh, north and doing the same thing, dispossessing the inhabitants of the land, fulfilling Scripture, uh, fulfilling a command, really, of God in Deuteronomy chapter 20. You remember verses 16 through 18 was uh, a pivotal uh, verse or few verses where the Lord explains why they had to be destroyed. And you can also couple that with Genesis 15, uh, verses 15 through 18, I believe it is, where God's covenant with Abraham telling him that he would give, God would give him and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, give them the land of Canaan, the entire thing. And it was going to take some time before God would bring him in there because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. God was still gracious, even with unbelieving nations that have been bent on idolatry. God is still, remember, he, just doesn't, he doesn't hate people. God loves the sinner, and he loves the saint. And he gives people an opportunity to turn from their sin. And so they, they conquered that whole area uh, up north. And then there comes this happy time in the, in the lives of the children of Israel where now they can kind of settle in. And really, if you go back, um, you don't have to go there with me, but just beginning in verse um, or chapter 13, we, we, we know that it just speaks of the, the three tribes or the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Uh, chapter 13 really speaks of that. And then finally in chapter 14, we get into the tribes uh, settling on the west side of the Jordan River. And we see that through 14, 15, and 16, the, those chapters, specifically Judah uh, coming in to inhabit their land and uh, Caleb being given a special parcel of land because of his faithfulness to God, him and uh, Joshua both will receive similar parcels of land separately from within the tribes that they belong to, but God gave them a special uh, parcel of land because of their faithfulness. And he did that because you remember when they first went into uh, the, 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 the promised land, remember Moses sent out 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes, and Ten of them came back with an evil report, and only Joshua and Caleb were the two that came back with a good report. They were, their hearts were filled with faith. They believed what God had told them, and God looked at these two men and says, you guys are amazing. 
You believed what I said. Would to God that the other ten would have as well. But they were faithful, and the other ten were walking in unbelief. And we know that Joshua and Caleb and only the younger generation would inherit the promised land. All of that generation that came out of Egypt perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They spent 40 years out there in unbelief, testing God over and over again, and God destroyed them in the desert, in the wilderness. And so we look at chapter 15, where it speaks of just a parceling out of Judah, and then we get into chapter 16, uh, where it speaks of Ephraim and West Manasseh. And uh, remember, the children of Joseph are Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh, they are two separate tribes. There, there's a half-tribe uh, on the east side of the Jordan. There's a half-tribe on the west side of the Jordan. And we know that Ephraim is also a son of Joseph. And so between Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh, those were the ones on the west side of the Jordan River that were uh, inhabited, and, and they, they, they got their land and so finally, we come into chapter 18, and now we have a problem. Because now the, the children of Israel have, uh, you know, they've come into the land. Uh, all of them have seen how God has blessed those on the eastern side, you know, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the north, how God had blessed them, and, and they're settled in their land. And, and now the, the children of Israel on the western side, we see Judah, and we see Ephraim and Manasseh, and there's this great joy because there's a settling now. The wars are, the, the big wars are over. The, the smaller little skirmishes are supposed to be there as they would inherit the land. They were to drive out and uh, dispossess and actually destroy the inhabitants of those areas per God's command, right? But what happened is they, they, get, they, they get a little lax, and they start slowing down because now things are, the reality of them settling in the land starts to hit them. And they're seeing their brothers starting to settle down and put up their tents and putting up the tabernacle. And all of a sudden, the settledness sets in. And isn't it true that most of us, you know, when that kind of thing happens, we just kind of slow down. We kind of slow down instead of keeping the momentum, which is really what they ought to have done. But let's read. Uh, the first 10 verses of Joshua chapter 18, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Let's read it. It says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. Shiloh is this, uh, this, this, this town, this city, and this is where they, they settled. And it says, And they set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. And you might want to circle this next word in the in verse 2 but there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes because remember if you do the math two and a half tribes are on the east side you got two and a half that are already settled so now we have another seven left to go in and take their land to 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 um, go in and settle that land and so it says but there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance verse 3 then Joshua said to the children of Israel how long will you neglect to go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men of each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land. They will survey it according to their inheritance and come back to me, and they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. 
You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they've received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went. They passed through the land and, and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. And then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. So let's go back to verse 1 here. And you may be wondering why this is such a big deal. You know, um, them dividing the land. Again, this is, a, this is a victory lap, if you will, because they've already done the major battles, and now it's just a question of going in and doing a little bit of cleanup and settling in. That was the design of God for them, because he wanted to bless them, because they were servants to Egypt for 430 years under hard labor, and God heard the cries of his people. Now he's bringing them into a land that flows with milk and with honey. And they were coming into vineyards that have already been established. They're coming into houses that have already been established. So everything is there because the inhabitants that they would dispossess had everything going already. So they would go into these towns. Some of them they would burn. Some of them they would keep just as they are. And they would just literally move into their house, throw out all their idols, and clean up the walls, <laughs> throw out the beer cans, and then they would live. And then they would live. And why is this a big deal? You know, think of how explicit, as last week when we read the inheritance and the towns and the cities that God had given them, very specific, very precise things. If you had a, a detailed map back at this time, you could go and you could actually see all these places. And why is that a big deal? Well, God is precise. And that land belongs to them. And one of the reasons why the Bible is so wonderful is because God said that land is his. And as soon as he claimed that that land was his, I mean, the, we know Psalm 24, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. They belong to him. But he says, that's true, but that land right there, about the size of New Jersey, is mine. I'm going to give it to my people. I'm going to give it to whom I wish. And as soon as he made that declaration, the devil and all of the hordes of hell came against it. To keep it from happening, to show that God is somehow a liar, to thwart his purposes, and specifically to thwart the Messiah being born, and somehow sabotaging Genesis 3.15, where the, the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, crush the head of the serpent. Have you ever crushed the head of a serpent? Does it recover? No, it doesn't. You crush the head of the serpent, and it's done. And ultimately, that's the fate of Satan. And right now, we know he's, he's just like a roaming lying lion seeking whom he may devour. But those promises of God stood true, and everything was against them, and even their own flesh. But let's look at verse 18, or chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they assembled together at Shiloh. The word Shiloh literally means rest, which is a fitting place for them, because that's the place that they settled. 
and um, it's a place where they set up the tabernacle. In fact, it says that they set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. You know, they were, they, they were settling down, and they were going to set up the tabernacle because they needed a place to worship. And worship was a huge deal to the children of Israel. And it was in their DNA. It was, in, it was going all the way back in their heritage. Going back to the very beginning. To even Cain and Abel when Abel offered the sacrifice. And then later, even after the flood, the, the, the altars that were made by Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So long in their history was this idea of worshiping God and also the idea of one being sacrificed in my place. And those animals that were sacrificed were sacrificed in the place of the people who were offering those. And God allowed that substitutionary death, which we know is just a foreshadowing, really, of Jesus, his substitutionary death in our place on the cross. It was a, it was a, a, a type, if you will. But there's a, a phrase that someone has rightly said, It's a quote. It says, wherever I have a house, there God shall have an altar. Do you have an altar in your home? Not a physical, literal altar where you offer up, you know, animals. I mean, your grill could be an altar, I guess. But I'm not speaking about an altar in that sense. But do you have a time where your family can gather around? Do you have a time where you can get into the Word of God and maybe pray together, whether it's on the bed at night before you go to bed like we do, or whether, you know, sometime where the family eats together, They hang out together, they pray together, and even get in the Word together. Even if it's only for 10 or 15 minutes, I would encourage you to take the 10 or 15 minutes. You may have kids and they're all over the place, but take 15 minutes and get in the Word with them every single day. Start there, start there, and see what happens. Let them talk, you talk, and let them do a lot of talking. Let them get engaged and excited about it. And you know what? I've learned from my own experience that if 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 I'm always teaching... (laughs) Because that's just kind of in my DNA, I guess. But if I'm always doing that and my daughter doesn't get an opportunity to speak, it becomes somewhat of a drag for her. And unfortunately, I learned that lesson maybe a little too late. I don't know. But get in the word with them. There has to be a family altar. But notice that this was an altar. They, They raised up the tabernacle. Notice that the worship of God, Jehovah, it was preeminent because now that they were settling, there was no time like the present to set up the tabernacle and get at it. And you know, oftentimes when the Lord delivers and comes through on a promise or a blessing, just as we see here in a few minutes, that there's this tendency to kick back and and forget the Lord. And and that's exactly what we're going to see is going to happen. And and, and Joshua had to kind of prod them along and and scold them a little bit. But remember that they they halted their momentum, if you remember. that The same thing happened before. Remember when they first came into the land and they they, they destroyed Jericho and then they learned a hard lesson at Ai. You know, after that second attempt on Ai and it was successful, there was a lot of momentum militarily. And and, and it would have been very easy for them just to say, you know what, we're on this roll. We've had a a successful thing at Jericho. And and finally in Ai, we're ready to take it on because now the guys are in shape. You know, they've they've got their swords all cleaned up and, and sharpened and they're ready to go out. They're in the mood. They're in the groove of it. You know what I mean? And so... Um, they were ready to do that. 
But they halted after that. They stopped. Joshua stopped them, and they had a worship service. If you remember, before Ebal and um, uh, Mount Gerizim, they stopped this momentum. It was kind of unusual for a military leader to do that because they were on a roll, but they did. They stopped. They took a moment, maybe a day or two. We don't really know how long it was, but they, they took a moment, and they, they gave thanks to God. They worshiped God, and then they continued, and it was good for them to do that. But we see here, we find the tabernacle being set up, and the tabernacle would stay in Shiloh all the way through the book of Joshua. It would be there in Shiloh all through the the times of the judges, and we're talking about 300 years here. And then even on into 1 Samuel. In fact, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle... They were in Shiloh because we read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. It says, This man, Elkanah, he went up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice. And if you're going to worship or sacrifice, you've got to have a temple or you've got to have an altar. And that's exactly what it was. In Shiloh, they had the altar. They had the, all the implements there, and the tabernacle was there. And it had been there for over 300 years, nearly 400 years. So here we are. We see Samuel here as a... You know, going, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not, not Samuel, but Elkanah going up to Shiloh to, to worship. And then we find out in, in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, the Philistines coming and taking the Ark of the Covenant away from them. And then finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see this. This was uh, David's second attempt to bring in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And it says this in 2 Samuel verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 17. It says, so they, the Israelites and David, they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So whatever happened to the original tabernacle, maybe it was beat up, maybe it needed a new skin, don't really know. But whatever happened, David um, uh, had a tabernacle that he erected for the ark of the covenant and he brings it in. And so we're looking at quite a long time here. And this was, this is a significant part if you're um, a student of the Bible, which I hope you are, you know, underline that Shiloh and, and, and underline that word in this um, first verse and, and underline the word tabernacle because this is the first time that it's set up permanently for nearly 400 years. Before that, remember, they were nomads and going throughout the desert. But going on in verse 2, it says, But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Because we know that two and a half tribes on the west side, Judah, um, Ephraim, and, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they had already settled immediately. But now there were seven other tribes that had not received their inheritance. And notice what it says in verse 3. It says, Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, and notice he chides them. He gets on their case a little bit. He says, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Underline the word neglect, because it wasn't just you know, Joshua giving the orders and saying, You guys got to go now. The, 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 the idea is that Somehow they lost momentum after you know Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh. After they got settled, they just kind of stalled out. They just kind of stalled out. We don't know how much time it was, and 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 you know Joshua was looking around and going, you know, I don't know how long it was, but let me just hypothetically say, you know, what are you guys doing? There's like three or four weeks now, and you guys are just sitting around the campfire. You got land to go in and possess. We got lots to draw. Why are you waiting? <laughs> 
And so human nature, isn't it? Can you see a lot of yourself in this? Have you ever had a victory? And then after the victory, what's the tendency to want to do? You want to kick back. You want to take the lid off the Coca-Cola bottle. And you want to sit back and sip in the shade. That's a tendency with us. Sometimes we get, we get confident. We, we have a victory and we kind of rest on our lees instead of going forward and pushing forward when we know we, there's still yet more yet to do. We get lazy. And that is possible for all of us. But the initiative and the obedience was evidently the individual tribe's responsibility at this point. And so their, their, their zeal just was lackluster at this point. So in verse 4, he says, Pick out from among you three men from each of the tribes, and I will send them. They shall arise and go through the land. Notice, survey it. You might want to underline that. Survey it according to their inheritance and come back to me. Survey the land, three from each tribe. So you got three tri- or three men from each tribe of those seven tribes. you got 21 guys. Now they're going to go out and they're going to look in the land. Remember, it was very similar to what Joshua or what Moses did with Caleb and Joshua and those 10 other men from each of the heads of the tribes. You know, go and search out the land, except this time I want you to go and survey the land. I want you to write it in a book. I want you to come back, and we, we need to know exactly what's happening. And Josephus tells us in Antiquities, for those of you who care about this stuff, it's 5.1.21. It's in the Antiquities of Josephus. He, he reports that Joshua sent uh, ge, uh, geometricians, geometricians, I think, the, the geometry buffs, guys who really knew math, and they understood maps, and they were very gifted in writing maps. And, and, and parceling out lands. These are the guys who would have the tripod with that little yellow box on top, you know, and they'd have the hard hat on, and they'd be looking and, and par- parceling out the land and saying, you know, and, and going through that whole thing. That's what these kind of guys were. They were very gifted in this kind of thing. And so in verse 5, so they divide, and they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory in the south, and we, we can already see that they have already taken their land. And the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory in the north. And as I said, whenever you see the house of Joseph in the scripture, it's referring to Ephraim and Manasseh. Because remember, Manasseh in Genesis 48, he's the firstborn, and then uh, Ephraim uh, is the second. And so you can, you can see that. So the house of Joseph is Ephraim and Manasseh. And it says, and they shall remain in their territory in the, on the north. And, and if you look at a map, you can see that that is the place that they inherited. Verse 6, he says, You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me that I may cast lots for you there before the Lord our God. And, you know, often what they would do is they would have perhaps two different containers and they would have the seven tribes maybe on, a, on some kind of... Uh, some kind of stroika or some kind of paper or something, and they would write their name on it, and they'd stick it in a, in, a, in a jar. And then they'd have the parcels of land that they had surveyed. They would have them in another, and, and they would do it by lot. They would actually pull out a name, and then they'd mix it up and pull out another one, and these two would be married. This, this, this tribe would be given this specific land that those guys had surveyed. And why did God have to do that? Well, you know, casting lots is really safe because it removes the human element. It removes any favoritism because, in fact, in Proverbs it says this. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 18 says, Casting lots causes contentions to cease 
and keeps the mighty apart. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's why in the football games, in the Super Bowl, we just saw, right? That's why they come out with a coin toss. Because the sun may be coming up in one part of the stadium, and who wants to be kicking into, who wants to be catching the ball when the sun is in their face? Who's going to make that call? That's favoritism. So they'll flip a coin and they'll call it in the air. And whoever it lands on, tough luck. That's what you got. That's what you get, right? That's like casting lots. Because no human is coming up and saying, they're going to kick off over here and you guys are going to receive it. Are you kidding me? We got a disadvantage. We got the sun right in our eyes. But now it removes contention, doesn't it? Now there's no lawsuits. It doesn't really hold up because you flip the coin. Of course, the coin has two heads on it, but that's beside the point. But anyway, but also in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. See, the Lord knew exactly what these tribes needed, just like he knows what we need. And, and I love that, because the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is in the process of what we would call impartial Casting of lots, he's very much involved in all of that. It doesn't surprise him. And so it's very fair, and God has his way. He does. So in going on in verse 7, he says, But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. So the Levites who are responsible for the tabernacle, responsible for the sacrifices, responsible for rearing up and also taking down the tabernacle, and all those duties, the the, the, the Gershomites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites, they all had their, their things, uh, vocations that they had to do in the service of the temple or the, or the tabernacle. So the Levites, that was their inheritance. They didn't get a land to inherit per se because the Lord is their inheritance. The sacrifices, parts of those sacrifices were given to them for their families to eat for sustenance. And going on, he says, And Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went, and they passed through the land, and they wrote the survey in a book, in seven parts by cities, and they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. So Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land of the children of Israel according to their divisions. You know what's so wonderful is when, when God does things, he does things decently and in order. And even with his people Israel, he didn't just leave it up to chance. God was very specific. He, I mean, when you read through you know, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God basically gave them their government. He gave them the laws that they were to abide by. He gave them the rules and the regulations. They didn't have to make anything up. All they had to do is execute what he said and be obedient to what he said. And see, therein lies the secret. Obedience. How, how obedient are you to the word of God? How obedient am I to the word of God? You know, sometimes as we get older in the Lord, there can be little things that we, you know, certainly we don't do the big things. You know, maybe, maybe homosexuality is not a problem. 
Maybe you don't have a drinking problem. Maybe you don't have a, a drug problem. Maybe you don't have a problem with gossip. Maybe you don't have a problem with fornication or adultery. Maybe you don't have a problem with pornography. But maybe you like to steal a few things from the job. Maybe there's a few things that you're like, well, it's not, they're not going to miss a pen. I mean, give me a break. I mean, it's a really great pen. I mean, it's really nice. I got three of them already. Oh, did I say it out loud? I'll just take another one, you know. And so how obedient are you? Because the blessings are in the obedience. There are so many conditional promises in the Bible. God gave to Israel conditional promises. He also gave them unconditional promises. Those are the ones we like, where I don't do anything. God says it. I believe it. It's going to happen. Those are unconditional promises. But there's so many if-then statements in the Bible. They're everywhere. I would encourage you to circle those things as you read, especially in Deuteronomy. If you do this, then I will do this. Circle them, underline them. See that those things are conditional. Because God, there are certain things that he will do, and there are other things that he says, you have to do this, and then I will do this. But if you don't do that, then this is what's going to happen. And you can read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. There's a listing of blessings, and I think those are the chapters, blessings and cursings. So now we get into the land. So the land of Benjamin, hang on to your seats here because we're going to be doing a lot of reading and I'm going to be butchering a lot of pronunciations. <laughs> now the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families and the territory of their lot came out between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. And as we're reading this or as I'm reading it to you and maybe you're following along, every now and then just kind of glance up and look at the map and see where these are. Because it'll really encourage you to kind of get the idea geographically where you're at. He says, Their border on the north side began at the Jordan, and the border went up to the side of Jericho on the north, and went up through the mountains westward, and ended at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. The border went over there toward Luz, to the side of Luz, which is Bethel, southward, and the border descended to Ataroth-Adar, near the hill that lies on the south side of lower Beth-Haron. Verse 14, then the border extended around the west side to the south from the hill that lies before Beth Horon southward, and it ended at Kirjath Baal, which is, which is Kirjath Jerim, a city of the children of Judah. This was the west side. And see, I love the specificity of this. He's very specific about these things. And see, that's the way God is. He doesn't leave anything up, up to chance. He, he's, he's very clear about where they are to be. Verse 15, the south side began at the end of Kirjath-Jerim, and the border extended on the west and went out to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah. Then the border came down to the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is in the valley of Rephaim on the north. And this is in Jerusalem, right around the Temple Mount area and the Kidron Valley and in the surrounding areas. Descended to the valley of Hinnom, to the side of the Jebusite city on the south, which we know that Jebusite city is who? What city is that Jebusite city? Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. City of peace, Jerusalem. So it descended to the valley of Hinnom to the side of the Jebusite city on the south and descended to Enrogal because Jer uh, Jerusalem is right on the border. Uh, it's, it's in Benjamin and just across the border is Judah. 
Verse 17, and it went around from the north, went out to En Shemesh, and extended toward Geliloth, which is before the ascent of Adumim, and descended to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And then it passed along the, toward the north side of Arabah and went down to Arabah. Arabah is the salt sea, the dead sea. It's also called the Sea of Arabah. Okay, and that whole area just north of the Dead Sea, that is called the Arabah as well. It's a very dry, arid land. And um, if you go to Israel one of these times, you'll, you'll, you'll swim in the northern part of the Dead Sea, and you're, you're able to see the whole thing and see the whole, it's just really amazing. So, verse 18, and then it came to pass, then it uh, passed along, excuse me, along toward the north side of Arabah and went down to the Arabah. And the border passed along the north side of Beth Hogla. Then the border ended at the north bay at the Salt Sea, which we know is the Dead Sea today, at the south end of the Jordan. This was the southern boundary, and the Jordan was its border on the east side, and this was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to its boundaries all around, according to their families. Now the cities of the tribes of the children of Benjamin according to their families were Jericho, and I love this, he, he lists them, and uh, it's good, again, to take a look at these on the map. Uh, look at the uh, Bible maps in the back and find one for the, um, that time of Israel's history. But those uh, towns were Jericho, Beth Hagla, Emek Keziz, Beth Arabah, Zemaraim, Bethel, and then verse 23, Avim, Parah, Ophrah, Shephar, Hayamoni, Ophni, and Geba, 12 cities with their villages. Gibeon, Ramah, Beroth, Mizpah, Cher, uh, Chephira, Mozah, Rekim, Irpael, Terah-Allah, Zelah, Elef, Jabus, which is Jerusalem, Gibeah, and Kirjath, 14 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to to their families. And let's go on into verse or chapter 19, excuse me, and it continues on with the the lot of the of the land in specific places, specific towns that belong to them. And I and I like this too because it's like a land deed. You know, the in the in the I, I believe it's in Leviticus. It says the Lord says the land is mine. The land is mine, and I give it to whom I will. And he gave it to the Jews. And yet the Temple Mount, the Jebusite city, Jerusalem, is one of the most hotly contested, even today, pieces of real estate on the entire planet. It's unlike any other thing because anything that goes on there, believe me, is a hotbed. Anything that goes on there. I remember in 2005, Kathy and I went to Israel uh, with Pastor Jeff and some people from the church here, and Amir was our tour guide. He got us up onto the Temple Mount. And I'll never forget going up onto the Temple Mount and looking and standing there next to the Dome of the Rock and looking out the East Gate and just being mindful of all the things that have happened. This Jebusite city that David and um, his nephew conquered, Joab. And to think all the bloodshed on that little piece of land and to be standing up there and to know that, you know, first there was Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple destroyed. Now there's this Dome of the Rock, knowing what Ezekiel says about a coming temple in the millennium. And also in other passages that even before that, there's going to be a temple that the Antichrist is going to allow to be set up. And, and, to, and, to, and to fathom all of this, 
And to know that Jesus is coming back. And right across the valley there in the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. He's going to set foot on that. Zechariah tells us in chapter 14. He's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives and it's going to cleave in two. And the water is going to gush out from the threshold of that temple at that time. And it's going to go down into the Mediterranean on the west. And it's going to go down the, the Jordan or the, 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 the Judean foothills down to the Jordan Valley. And the Bible says in Ezekiel, I think it's 48, 47, 48, in those two chapters, that the Dead Sea is going to be made whole again. People are going to be fishing in the millennium. The Salt Sea, they're going to be fishing. They're going to be eating fish from the Dead Sea. It's going to be replenished. And just to think about that is just overwhelming. I sat there and I literally was shaking, considering all that had happened there and all that's going to happen. It's really quite the rush. <laughs> but notice verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, The second lot came out for Simeon. For the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families and their inheritance, was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. They had in their inheritance Beersheba, or Sheba, Moladah, Hazar, Shual, Bela, Ezim, Eltolad, Bethel, or Bethuel, I'm sorry, Hormah, Ziklag. You remember David and Ziklag. This is the Ziklag. Beth, Markarboth, Hazar, Susa, Beth, Labaoth, and Sharuhen, 13 cities and their villages. Ain, Ramon, Ether and Ashan, four cities and their villages, and all the villages that were all around these cities, as far as Baaleth Be'er, Ramah of the south. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And the inheritance, verse 19, of the children of Simeon was included. Notice this. This is kind of odd because it's, a, it's one of the uh, kind of an anomaly when you see it on a map because right in the center of Judah's inheritance, you've got this little block where Simeon is inside that. And he gives us the reason why here. He says, The inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. And why is that? It tells us. For the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. And I think if you look at that, you can see. You can see that the, the, the area of Judah was very expansive, very wide. And so the share of children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. Kind of neat. Verse 10, then the third lot came out to the children of Zebulun, according to their families, and the border of their inheritance was as far as Serid, and their border went toward the west to Merilah, went to Debesheth, and extended along the brook that is east of Jokneam. Then from Sered, it went eastward toward the sunrise along the border of Chislah-Tabor, and went out toward Deberoth, bypassing Jephia. And from there it passed along the east of Gath-Hefer toward Ethkazin and extended to Ramon, which borders on Nia. Then the border went around it on the north side of Hanathon, and it ended in the valley of Jephthah-El. Included were Ketath, Nahalal, Shimron, Idalah, and Bethlehem. We know that, right? Bethlehem, that's one that we recognize, <laughs> the city of bread. Twelve cities with their villages. Verse 16, this was the inheritance of the children of Zebulun according to their families. These cities with their villages. Again, I love how clear everything is. 
No one has a claim to this land like the children of Israel do. It doesn't belong to the Palestinians. It doesn't belong to their Arab neighbors. It doesn't belong to the United States. It doesn't belong to Great Britain, who had their finger in this whole thing in their times past. It doesn't belong to anyone except for God, and he gave it to them, and it's an everlasting thing. He gave it to them. In fact, God gave them all the way from the from the river of Egypt, which may be um, the Nile River or a, a river over in that area, all the way over to the Euphrates River, over in the, where Babylon is. He gave them that whole land. They have never, ever inhabited all of that land. The closest they got was during Solomon's reign. Between David and Solomon, the, the kingdom was pretty expansive, but it never, ever got to that point. But guess what? In the millennial reign, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be there. And they're going to have all of it. And there'll be no disputes. There'll be no, um, there'll be no problems. There'll be no courtrooms. So the land of Issachar, verse 17, the land of Issachar. The fourth lot came to Issachar for the children of Issachar according to their families. And their territory went to Jezreel and included Chesulof, Shunem, Hephraim, Shion, Anaharath, Rabbith, Kishion, Abez, Remeth, En Ganim, En Hadah, and Beth Pazez, and the border reached to Tabor, Shehazimah, and Beth Shemesh. Their border ended at the Jordan. Sixteen cities with their villages. Not fifteen cities, but sixteen cities. Everything is very well notated, everything is very precise and exact, as you can expect from the Lord. He's a, he's a God of order. He's not a God of disorder. This was the inheritance of the children of Issachar, according to their families, the cities and their villages. And then the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families. And their territory included Helkath, Hali, Beten, Akshaph, Elamelech, Ahmad, and Mishal. It reached to Mount Carmel westward along the brook Shihor Libnath. It returned toward the sunrise, and the, the sunrise is toward the west, right? To Beth Dagon. And it reached to Zebulun and to the valley of Jiphath El, then northward beyond Beth Amek and Nael, bypassing Kabul, which was on the left, including Ebron, Rehob, Haman, and Cana, as far as greater Sidon. And the border turned to Ramah and to the fortified city of Tyre. And then the border turned to Hosah and, the, and ended at the sea by the region of Akzib. Also Uma, Aphek, and Rehob were included, 22 cities and their villages. And this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families. These cities with their villages. And again, I, I just love how clear God is. There's no problems yet. <laughs> so the sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali, for the children of Naphtali, according to their families, and their border began at Heleph, enclosing the territory from the terebinth tree in Zayanamim, Adami, Nekeb, and Jabneel, as far as Lachum. It ended at the Jordan. And from Heleph, the border extended westward to Asnoth Tabor, and went out from there toward Hukok. It adjoined Zebulun on the south side and Asher on the west side and ended at Judah by the Jordan toward the sunrise. 
And I love how God puts these directional things in the Scripture. And it's so interesting. As you read your Bible, make sure you make note of these things, geographical things, uh, things where the sun is rising, where the sun is setting. You know, God doesn't, you know, say, you know, where the sun rises and then says that it's in the east or in the west. Because everyone knows the sun rises in the east. And, you know, it would only make sense. I mean, there's no errors like that. God knows what he means, and he means what he says. And he's very accurate. So, the sixth lot came to the children of Naphtali. Naphtali is this area up around the Sea of Galilee. The place where we're going to be going in a few weeks in Israel is Nafganasar, which is right next to near Capernaum, right near Tiberias. And it's a wonderful place right there on the, on the uh, Sea of Galilee. And that whole land around there, it used to be called Galilee of the Gentiles much later in time. But at this time, it was given to Naphtali. And so the, the sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali for the children of Naphtali, according to their families. And their border began at Heleph, enclosing the territory from the ter- I think I just read that, didn't I? No, I didn't. I don't think I did. I think I did, actually. I think I read that. The land of Naphtali? I don't think I did. Anyway, their border, verse 33, uh, began at Heleph, enclosing some of these names. After a while, you start getting your eyes start to cross. I think you're probably there by now, right? So, <laughs> um, from Heleph, the border extended, verse 34, westward. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 33. Let's start right there, verse 33. <laughs> and their border began at Heleph. Enclosing the territory from the Terebinth tree and Zayanaim, Adami, Nekeb, and Jabneel, as far as Lucum. I think I did read this. So let's go on, I'm sorry. In verse 39, it says, of course, this was the inheritance of the tribe of Naphtali. But then we get to verse 40, and this is interesting, because the tribe of Dan is very interesting, because the land that Dan inherited really wasn't that great. The land really wasn't that great. And let's just read it, because this is kind of interesting because of what happened later on. It says, The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, and the territory of their inheritance was Zorah, Eshtaol, Ir Shemesh, Shealabin, Ajalon, Jethla, Elon, Timnah, Ekron, Elteca, Gibbethon, Baalath, Jehud, Bene Berek, Gath Rimon, May Jarkon, and Rakon, with the region near Joppa. And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these, notice this, because the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem or Laish and took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword, took possession of it, and dwelt in it. And they called Leshem Dan, after the name of, their, of Dan, their father. Now, if you look on a map, you'll notice that the tribe of Dan settled there on the, on the shore of the Mediterranean there on the west. But you'll also notice way up north, right between Naphtali and Manasseh, up there by Mount Hermon, there's this little area up there, and you can see it, it's orange. And this is where Dan also, because I, evidently there was a... Um, they, they had some... Uh, the, the Amorites drove... Well, actually, let me just read it to you in Judges. Write this verse down because it, it, it helps you understand why there was what happened in Dan and why they went up further north. Why did that happen? Well, it tells us in Judges chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 34. And this is kind of interesting. He says, And the Amorites, remember, those were Canaanites. These are the people groups that God told them to destroy completely, leave nothing alive. Okay? But the Amorites, when they got into their land, they didn't completely drive them out. In fact, it says, And the Amorites, they forced the children of Dan into the mountains. So this was their land. This was their lot that they got. They were supposed to go in and notice what happened. For they would not allow them, the Amorites, they wouldn't allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez and Ajalon and in Shealbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. They were put under tribute. But what had happened is when they did um, oppress them, the Amorites, many of them took off to the north and they fought a battle against this, uh, against Leshem, which we know today as modern day Laish, L-A-I-S-H. And it's right up there, um, right at the base of Mount Hermon, and we visit this place. Remember uh, Jeroboam. Now, if we fast forward a couple hundred years, remember what Jeroboam did. What did he do? In order to keep the people unified, the, the, the northern ten tribes, what did Jeroboam do? He set up two centers of worship. He set up an altar in Bethel and another one in Dan, way up in the north, as you see on, on the map behind me. They set up a, an altar there, and they had two golden calves, one in each place, and they worshipped everything. They were very idolatrous. And when we go to Israel, we visit, we go up to Dan, and we see that altar. There's remnants of it still there today. You go there, and you're standing right there where it all happened, where they worshipped the golden calf, where they did the human sacrifices. They sacrificed the babies to the gods of Molech and Ashtaroth and all these other gods, Baals. You see the altar. It's there today. Very broken down, but they, they have a reconstruction over it to kind of give you an idea of what it might have looked like. It's very interesting. But to be there and to see and to read about this and all throughout their history, and, and that's a center of idolatry, and that's one of the reasons that God brought them out of their land and they were taken captive by the Assyrians, remember, in 722 B.C. So verse 48, it says, This is the inheritance. Verse 48. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. And now when we get into verse 49 through 51, we see a special parcel of land that God had given to Joshua. Joshua. It's interesting that, and, and now we're done, really, with all the parceling out of, of the land. And thank you for your patience and going through those names and places. But I, but I like it. And I think it's worth reading because of the preciseness of it and how, how God is very specific. But now, after it's all done, the tribes on the east side, the tribes on the west side, they all have their land, and it's all parceled out there. They're in it. And notice what Joshua... Remember, Joshua was a member of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim had already received its inheritance, but what Moses had done has, has, has given Joshua a special parcel of land. And he did the same thing for Caleb. And why those two brothers? Why these two men? Because those are the only two who really had faith in God. They believed in God. 
And God never forgot it. And he says, you know what, guys? When you get into your land, everyone else has their little, they're going to live in these different towns, but you are going to have a special place because of your faith in me. You didn't believe the other ten. You didn't get caught up in all the hysteria and all the fake news. You believed me, and you, 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 you believed me, and your belief, he loved that. He loved that. So it's interesting to note that Joshua waited until the inheritance of all the tribes was completed before he took his parcel of land. And you see, this is the mark of a true leader. It's the mark of a true godly man. It's a true shepherd. He waits, he gets all the sheep where they need to go, and then he worries about himself. Joshua, because of his position, he could have just marched in and said, this is what I'm going to take and this is what I'm going to do, but he didn't do it. He waited to the end. And see, that's the mark of a true man of God, a true shepherd. He gets the people in there, and then once they're all settled, then he says, let me see, what can I, where can I go? <laughs> and the city that he took wasn't exactly very fertile and beautiful either. In fact, you know, well, let's look at it. The, the, the town that he was going to take, and we're going to see this in just a few seconds as we read this, and then we'll take communion together. The place that he took was a city called Timnath Sarah. Timnath Sarah was a rugged city. It wasn't fertile. It was very, um, very rough, and it was mountainous, and it was in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the allotted land of Ephraim. And he was given this town, Timnath Sarah. It wasn't the best looking city like the other cities, it was okay wasn't very fertile, and you, you, you want a fertile place, right? You want a place where you can grow crops and, and, and have livestock feeding. But Joshua said, you know, that's okay for me. I'll take that rugged, mountainous, infertile place. And he, he'd build a city there. And why is that? Remember in Numbers 32, verses 11 and 12, God commended Joshua and Caleb, he said this, he said, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. That is why they received a special plot of land. And the same thing was given to Caleb. We don't have time to go there, but read Joshua chapter 14, specifically verses 6 through 15. And Joshua himself, he gets Hebron, remember? A land that still had some giants in it, and it was mountainous. And here, you know, Caleb is 85 years old. He's like, I'll go up there and I'll take those guys out. I'm going to take, take this here cane and I'm going to whack them upside the head. 85-year-old man, he said, my strength hasn't departed from me. As when I was 40, I'm 85 now, I can take him. <laughs> you got to love a guy like that. I mean, God couldn't even shut him up. He's like, God bless you. <laughs> you know, man, I want a heart like that. You know, when you see obstacles, you're just, you, you don't size it up in the natural. You're just like, well, God told me he's going to give it to me, so I'm going to go take it. If i got to whack him over with my Ger Geritol bottle, I'm going to do it. But he's full of faith. So when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance, according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for. Timnath Sarah. Notice, a, a city that he asked for. He didn't pick a, a, a really nice city. 
you know, with nice transportation systems, you know, nice social security thing happening, nice food bank over here, nice pools, some nice, you know, um, you know, um, whatever. <laughs> According to the word of the Lord they gave him, Timnasera, in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. So even at 85, he's, he's building and he's going to dwell in it. And these are the inheritance which Eleazar, notice, Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, they divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, so they made an end of dividing the country. And isn't that exciting? Again, a really happy time for them. But we're going to see as we get into, um, when we get into Judges in a, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll see that all these tribes, they got into their land, but they didn't drive out the inhabitants. Every single one of them, they were remnants that they were supposed to take care of, and they didn't. So how important is obedience? It's really important. Because one act of disobedience has ramifications sometimes that go years into the future. And you and I know that because there are decisions that each of us have made in this room that have had an impact on our life. We can never go back and fix them. We can't go back and have a do-over. And so what it really does for me is it brings into sharp relief this idea, God, i got to be devoted to you. i got to be listening I got to be reading. I got to. I got to know your heart, and I got to be willing to be led by you. Am I self-willed? And I would encourage you not to be, because again, the blessing is in the obedience. Didn't Jesus say, "If you will love me, you'll keep my commandments"? That's what he said over and over again in the Gospel of John. We hear that: "If you love me, keep my commandments." And we'll get into chapter twenty and twenty-one next week. Great chapter. Speaking of the cities of refuge and the land allotted to the Levites. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and we pray that you'd establish us, Lord, and encourage us. Lord, strengthen our faith. Lord, help us to be obedient to you. Starting tonight, Lord, help us to start over if we need to. Lord, from whatever wreck we've made of our life this week. Lord, whatever wreck we've made of today even. Lord, the things that we've done that we know are wrong. Lord, help us to turn the page when we leave that right now as we take communion. Help us to turn the page and to notice that all of these handwritings of, of the enemy of our soul, the things that he's written and accusing us before you, those things we washed away in the blood of Christ. That can happen for us tonight, Lord. We pray that you do that. And we know that if we ask and confess, you will be faithful to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we thank you, Lord. Amen.